This is the last uh, sermon from me, at least, in the Old Testament as part of this series, The Story. And uh, we've been trying to follow the history, his story, the history of God's dealings with his people from creation, the calling of, of Abraham, right the way through to the time of the kings, then out into exile, God's judgment for the people. Uh, and now God's been bringing them back with uh, Ezra and uh, this week, Nehemiah. And then next week, God calls the people that he's brought back to the land to renew themselves. It's uh, not simply good enough for there to be a temple and for there to be uh, a city. What God longs to do is a work within our hearts. And uh, we know that too well. It's not good enough just for there to be a church. And it's not good enough just for us to show up or even to sing our hymns and to pay our dues or whatever it might be. What God longs to do is a work in our hearts. So next week we'll look at the book of Malachi together, uh, when God calls the people to be renewed, not just in what they do externally, but renewed in their spirits, in their hearts. And then it all goes quiet. And in a fortnight's time we'll think about the silence It all goes quiet, and all the people of God are left with are the promises. Have you ever been at a time in your life when all you are left with is the promise of what God has said? And that's where they are, and we'll look at that in a fortnight's time. We'll then take a break through August and do some other things together during the times that we gather. And we'll say a bit more about that in subsequent weeks. And then back on the first Sunday in September, which is, I don't know, about the 4th of September, something like that, we'll start on the New Testament. In the same kind of way, trying to follow the events through the history as it unfolds. So not book by book, but through the uh, key moments, beginning, of course, with the birth of Jesus. And we'll look at his life. And uh, you will know from the time we spent in the Old Testament that Jesus is quite important to the whole Bible story. You got that? Uh, And so if you've got that, then what we're going to do, we're going to slow down when we get to Jesus and spend several weeks looking at, uh, well, starting with his birth, obviously, which is a good place to start, I would have thought, uh, and going through his, his life. So rather than, than flying at some 30,000 feet over it, like we've been doing in the Old Testament, we'll, we'll hover in a, in a helicopter or so at 10,000 feet and, and look in a bit more detail at the way the life and the ministry of Jesus unfolded and the way everything moves unstoppably towards his death and then his resurrection and you might get another glimpse that in the end it's all one book. You notice that? That it's all telling the same story from beginning to end. Let's pray together, shall we, as we get into Nehemiah this morning. Father, would you help us? These, this story we know quite well, probably. It's a, a better known story than some of the others. Would you bring it to us afresh today? Help us not just to know it as a story, but to be able to grasp what it's saying to us there in your word. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Nehemiah then tells the story of how, under the leadership of Nehemiah, the clues in the name of the book, the wall of the city was rebuilt, and towards the end of the book, they made some progress with the spiritual renewal of the people. 
These pages are immensely rich and we can hardly do justice to it uh, this morning. Suffice to draw out some of the, the themes that have struck me again as I've been reading this book over the last week or so. We'll pick up the story then in chapter 1. And to use the language of uh, last week, we see from the very last phrase, the very last sentence of chapter 1, that Nehemiah was a settler. He had settled uh, quite happily uh, in Susa, where he had risen to have a high-profile job. This, this was no menial task, although we have the idea of him simply tasting the wine so that uh, the, he, the king could be assured that the wine hadn't been drugged or poisoned in some way. It was nevertheless a role that involved much more than that. Think more of a confidant to the, to the king someone who advised him, someone who who lived as his right-hand man, someone who was trustworthy and who'd been given this role of quite considerable honor. So Nehemiah has access to the palace. He has all the perks of royalty. His children uh, are privately educated. He's financially secure. In every aspect, in, in earthly terms, Nehemiah is very settled indeed, like us. He's made a home for himself. But like us also, there is in Nehemiah a passion that maybe for a while has lain dormant, that is about to be fueled and ignited. A passion that is about to be awakened. The first thing for us to notice about this story of Nehemiah is that he mobilized passion. His own passion, and perhaps you'll understand why I'm saying that in just a moment. If we are to be useful for God, then the passion that is within us needs to be awakened. And as settlers, more than pilgrims, we are tempted more often than not, I think, to protect ourselves from places, from moments, from environments, from circumstances that might awaken that passion in us. Because we're a little bit fearful that if that passion really does awaken in us and get hold of us in some way, we'll be propelled out of our comfort zone, our life will be more awkward than it might otherwise be, and so we worry about what it might mean to live a little bit more radically, what it might mean to live a little bit more with with our days a little bit more uncertain and a bit more uncomfortable. We worry about what it might mean for our settledness to be disturbed and for us to become pilgrims instead. So we protect ourselves from things that might ignite a cause or a passion within us. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, uh, you might know the story of how a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and uh, there were robbers along the way. This man was robbed and beaten and left half dead by the side of the road. And Jesus tells a story about a number of people that, that came and instead of tending and looking after the man, they walked on by. But Jesus says something very interestingly about the way that the first two men who failed to stop walked on by. Jesus says quite simply that they went on the other side. So they saw the man lying in the road and they went on the other side of the road to pass him. And with good reason. Because the closer that they got to the man, 
What would it be like if they could see his face and his bleeding body? The tug to do something about it would increase or decrease. The closer they got, the harder or easier it would be to walk on by. The harder. And so, like we might be tempted to do, they walked on the other side for fear that their passion might be aroused, that their compassion might be stirred. The temptation of the other side. I wonder about whether you live metaphorically walking on the other side. I wonder whether you've become good at not getting too close to something that you know would disturb you. And you're afraid for it to disturb you because you know that if it disturbs you, it will be harder for you to ignore it. And quite frankly, you, do, you want to ignore it because you're concerned about how it might unsettle you. And so the opening challenge here in these verses that Nehemiah presents to us is that he adopts a position of being open to have his passion stirred. He was willing to have his comfort disturbed, to have his equilibrium rocked. And and so he he says to the guys that visit, well, come on, tell me about. Let me see it. Let me feel it. Let me hear about it. Tell me about what's going on in Jerusalem. And sure enough, his passion was about to be aroused. Are we willing to have our passion aroused? We're not known for our passion, are we, as the people of God? No. Thanks, Bob. We're right. The others are laughing nervously about that. Are we... What is it? What is it? I've got this theory, you see, that, that, that inside each one of us, there is a passion bursting to get out. And instead of fanning it into flame, instead of getting in touch with it, we, we've done what good Western Christians do, and that's let it go really deep. And for some of us, there were passions in us when we were younger. We've allowed them to go so deep, we almost can't remember what they were or why they are there. Are we willing to have our passion aroused? It stirred Nehemiah. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What's the passion in you? Are you longing to see people come to Christ? You're longing to see people lifted out of poverty. You're longing to see people that are denied opportunity in some sphere or other be given an opportunity. Are you longing for the marginalized to find inclusion and acceptance? Are you longing for the broken to be healed? Are you longing for people lost in grief to know a comfort and a reality and a purpose for their lives? There's something in all of us that's waiting to be aroused. So what is it for you? And what are the ways that you walk on the other side to make sure you never get quite in touch enough with that for it to disturb your equilibrium and to unsettle the settled? 
So for Nehemiah, it was his determination to see God's people reestablished. He, he longed for God's people to be the light to the nations that God had called them to be. So the idea of him carrying on in, in Susa while Jerusalem was in ruins, while Jerusalem was a laughing stock to the surrounding nations, while everybody could look at the, the disarray in Jerusalem and say, well, well, their God's hopeless. He's far too small. Their God can't do anything. Look at the state of their city and their nation. But do we want to be that disturbed, really? You see, the more I think about this, can I be honest for a moment? You sure? Will you still love me if I tell you the truth? Uh, Well, sure. You see, if I'm honest, the more I think about what God could stir in me, the more aware I am of how I long to be settled. The more I sense what God longs to do, the more I think I'm quite happy, actually. Thank you very much. And God wants to do a work in me and in us that takes us to this point of saying, God, give it to me. Help me to see what you're calling me to do because I'm willing to give it up, whatever makes me feel settled, in order to be a pilgrim for your purpose. That's the challenge of the book of Nehemiah, in a nutshell. Very easy. He's miles away just to have left it. Very easy for him to say, well, that's a shame. And yet we've become so anesthetized in our world to pain and trouble. And in a sense, thank goodness we have, or we'd barely get up in the morning. That we can watch the news about something incredibly painful and difficult going on, and Ipswich lost 3 1. And we walk away slightly more disturbed about the. But that was below the belt, wasn't it? In, In several ways, that was wrong and unhelpful and unnecessary. My apologies. We're looking forward to the season with renewed enthusiasm, aren't we, everybody? So. Because we protect ourselves. And in the way that we do that in life, uh, the more I think about it, I've got this theory bubbling away that that there are things in all our lives that we know that if God put his finger on it, whoa, a fire would ignite within us, and we're not sure we want the fire, so we protect ourselves from it. So when I hear things that would stir me, I I, I stay away a little bit. I I walk on the other side of the road, but I don't really want to see it too close, because I know if I see it... If I see it up close, two things will happen. Either I'll still ignore it, but I'll live my settled life troubled, and that's no fun, or I'll have to do something about it and leave my settled life altogether, and that doesn't feel like fun either. And so the core, the challenge of these opening verses that we know so well is will you allow your passion to be mobilized? And one of the first signs that your passion is becoming mobilized, is that you begin to what? The clues in the chapter. Pray. He mobilized passion. Secondly, he mobilized prayer. Almost the first sign that God's stirring something is that you begin to pray in a way that maybe you haven't prayed before or for a long time. 
When have you prayed the most? It's not a trick question. When have you prayed the most? You've prayed the most when you have felt desperate about something or someone, I suspect. Many of us know what it is to be stirred to pray because we're desperate, usually about someone that we know and love, or maybe a situation, or whatever it is. And we've become desperate. Which, of course, begs the question, The issue might not be whether we as a church are passionate about prayer. The issue might be whether we as a church are passionate. Because it strikes me that if the Christian gets passionate about something, gets desperate about something, the Christian will pray. Because that's what Christians do. And, and it's not so much that we don't believe in prayer or, or that we can't even be passionate about our praying because when the chips are down, when our backs are against the wall, we've all learned to pray rather desperately. So maybe our prayerlessness, if I can use a sweeping generalization, and I know we pray and I know you pray and I know I pray, but our prayerlessness, because we all know it's not where it should be, our prayerlessness is not that we don't have a passion about prayer, but maybe we don't have a passion. And our lack of prayer might just be an indication of my indifference. Could be. And your indifference also. So Nehemiah gets praying. He, um, he, he prays for four months and fasts and prays for four months. I mean, going without food for four hours is a sign you're committed to something, isn't it? You know, from breakfast to lunch without a snack. That's like you're on the money. Four months he fasts and he prays. And I asked myself the question, what would get me praying like that for four months? What would get me praying like that for four hours? So out of his mobilized passion comes to this sense of, of mobilized praying. And maybe for me, for me it's about praying that God would, that the God would take away these, these layers that I use to protect myself from the things that would really get at me. So for example, the fact that millions of people are lost and facing a lost eternity. We protect ourselves from that by using euphemisms. And we protect ourselves from that by not thinking about it too much. Or is that just me? Just me. Suddenly I feel very alone in a crowd. So, God, take away the let that I can feel some of this stuff in a new way. Strikes me as Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, you know, towards the end of the, uh, towards the end of his life. And he stands on the Mount of Olives. He's coming from Bethany up over the mountain, gets to the ridge of the mountain, and Jerusalem is just like out in front of you. If you've been there, it's an amazing sight even to this day. And as he stands there, he what? The Bible says he weeps, just very simply. Jesus, he just looks and he, and he, and he weeps. And, and what, I, what, what I think about all the time about that verse is that when Jesus stood there and wept, it was festival time, it was pilgrim time. So all the best religious people were on their way into Jerusalem for the festival, because that's what you did. No one else stopped to weep. They saw the city and on they went. I want that spirit from God that makes me stop. Well, I don't, actually, but I do. Do you get what I mean? You know, I want it, but I don't, quite frankly. I want to be troubled, but I don't. 
So a mobilized passion, mobilized prayer leads to a mobilized plan. A mobilized plan. And we're still in chapter 1, but it's only 20 to 12, so it's fine. So he begins to pray. And I don't know at what point he begins to realize that he is the answer to the prayer that he's praying. And be very aware that when you begin to pray, you are often the answer. The plan could be you. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. He has this burning passion. You began to pray and you think, my golly, I'm praying for God to do something about this with someone. And God's saying, hello. It could be you. So he starts praying in verse 5. By the end of this period of prayer, he's got this plan formulated, and he says at the end, Lord, give me success when I go into the king. The very final sentence of chapter 11. If you find yourself with a passion and a prayer, it doesn't need a genius to work out that you might be the answer. And maybe in our praying, we're saying, Lord, we're we're longing for you to do something. And God says, yeah, I'm longing for you to do something. Come on, God, where are you? And the reply from heaven is, come on, church, where are you? Oh, we're in our church singing our songs, didn't you see? And so if we're not careful, we, we get into this. God, you must do something about this. God, how can you let this happen in your world? And God says, hello. And so as Nehemiah begins to wrestle this through, he he senses God's putting his spirit on him, that God's calling him to do something about it. And I love that moment in the Gospels when the the, the crowds have been following Jesus and they're all over the mountainside and it's getting late and the disciples say, goodness, we've got to feed these people. And they effectively pray. They say, Jesus, we need to feed these people. And what does Jesus say? You do it. No, 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 no. Jesus, we need... You do it. You do it. And we try and miss out the middleman or woman. You and I are the middlemen and women. The cries of our hearts embody within us sometimes the very answers to the prayers that we are praying. God, please do something. And he says the same to us. So this mobilized plan uh, uh, emerges. He's going to go back to uh, Jerusalem to help them. But it's a little tricky. Now, don't be put off when your plan is a little tricky. All of God's plans are a little tricky. Nothing in this book went very straightforwardly, did it? You know, it's all this stuff about it must be God's will because it's easy peasy. That's another Bible. It's not this one. It must be God's plan because I'm, my back's against the wall and I bust in a gut and I'm exhausted, but I'm clinging on to God with both hands. That could be God's plan. Because that's often the way it is in here. So, verse 1 of chapter 2, Artaxerxes is the king. Now, if you know anything about this period of time, and you've looked at Ezra, and you've done your homework since last week, and you've worked out how Ezra and Nehemiah all fit together, and and the kings and stuff, uh, and all that. If you've done all that, you ought to get a life. But anyway, um, if you've done all that, you will know that Artaxerxes is one of the kings that had issued a decree that had caused the people in Jerusalem 
to have their walls broken down and for them to be in disgrace. They'd started to rebuild, but the enemies in Jerusalem had sent word to the king of the whole empire saying, don't let this happen, don't let those Jews get too strong again, because if they get strong again, they'll revolt and all this stuff. And so King Artaxerxes had issued a decree saying that the work should be stopped and the work that had been done thus far should be crushed. So essentially, Nehemiah has to go to the king and says, you know that rebellious people, you know you stopped them rebuilding the walls of their city, I now want to go back and help them, okay with you? This is a big ask. This is a big moment. This is the most powerful man in the world. Nehemiah is for him a two a penny, even though he's got a high job in the king's court. And so here we go. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, always a good time to try something on the king when wine's been brought. I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Love the honesty of God's word. I was very much afraid. Sometimes in God's plan, you can be very afraid. Yeah? Don't bail out when you're afraid as if God isn't in it. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You can pray anytime, any place, anywhere. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And you'll also see, if you read on in those verses, that not only did the king say yes, but he provided an escort because it would be uh, difficult to travel. He provided resources and so on. Again, a pagan king helping God's people who's in charge. You've got the idea. Big theme of the exile and the return, God is in charge. He can use Christian people and he can use non-Christian people for his purpose. He can use anybody because he's God. So, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, has a few days rest, takes a look around and sizes up the problem. The next task is that he mobilized people. He mobilized people. I love verse 16 of chapter 2. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. So the people in Jerusalem are still quite clueless because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others. Who would be doing the work? (laughs) Timing's everything, isn't it? Let's get them all excited about something that's about to happen before we tell them they're the ones that are going to do it. But that's God's strategy, isn't it? Get you all wound up about something. You're praying like mad for it and God says it's you. So, divine strategy here going on. If this was going to succeed, then a whole team of people would be required. The kingdom is a team game. A team game. The plans that God places in our hearts will only come to fruition as part of the team called the church. The kingdom is a team game. God loves teams. Jesus, first thing he did was to pick a team. Then when he sent them out, he sent them out in teams. When they went out on their missionary journeys, as we'll see in Acts, they went out in teams. Teams is God's good 
idea. So Nehemiah sells the vision to the people, verse uh, 17. Uh, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. But then verse 18, every vision needs to leave us looking only to God. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, we can do this, chaps. And the reason I know that we can do this is let me just tell you a story about what God's doing. And he tells them the story about how he went into the king and the king who'd ordered the work to stop had a complete change of heart and sent Nehemiah back with the resources and all that. If God has done all that, then we can trust him now for this. And as you look at your life and you say, God has done all this, what does that mean? It means you can trust him for this now. Because he's brought you to this place for a purpose. And so every vision, every plan needs to leave us looking only to God. You finish by pointing them to God and that's where their focus would be. And they said, okay, let's start rebuilding. So they began the good work, verse 18. Then chapter 3 is a lovely celebration of what being part of a team, what being part of the church, what being part of kingdom is all about. And chapter 3, very simply, is a picture of the work of the building of the wall right the way around the city. And whereas we find our way around towns and places by pubs, they find their way around their city by gates. So we might say the rat and duck, past the rat and duck and first left. They would say over by the fish gate and on the left. And so chapter 3 just goes right around the city, looking at the different gates and the wall as it related to the particular gate of the city. But what's important is the way that Nehemiah is celebrating the fact that they're all in this together. So you get Sheep Gate, verse 1, Fish Gate, verse 3, the Valley Gate, verse 13, as just a few examples. But look at verse 1 with me. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Nehemiah is saying, look, Eliashib, he was the high priest. And he, with all his mates, who were also priests, they got involved and they built this part of the wall. This is a sheep gate and they built all the way along that way and a little bit that way. That's what they did. And we're so grateful for them, for what they did as part of the overall job. They got stuck in. Everyone is involved. Verse 3, how fantastic were the sons of Hassanah. They built the whole fish gate They built the beams, the doors, the bolts, and the bars too. They got all that just brilliant for us. And we're so grateful for them because they played their part in that way. And so it goes on through the whole of the chapter. Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And then this lovely phrase, they also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the Dungate. They did their bit and they thought this bit needs doing as well. So we'll get on and we'll do this bit and we'll go all the way down to the Dungate. Seems a rather smelly place to end their work, but there we are. And so it's this sense that they're all a team. Everyone's involved. They've all got a part of the wall. They've all got a part to play. And if one part of the wall wasn't built, would Jerusalem be protected? No. And if one part of the wall doesn't get built in God's plans that he's birthing in us, will we be protected? Will the wall be built? No. And so as we enter chapter 4, uh, they're all working together as a team. Uh, they're doing kingdom work. The wall's getting rebuilt. And who hates it when that happens? 
Satan, imagine, imagine the whole church working in unity, building everything together, pulling together like this, the global church doing that. Somebody always hates it when that happens. And so it's no surprise, verse 1 of chapter 4, that we open with opposition to what's going on. When Sam Ballot, what a great name, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? It's all mockery. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? What did they do? Well, in response, they went straight to God. Okay? Straight to God. The first thing I want to do when I face opposition is what? Sorry? Hide. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, I hadn't thought that one, but I like to do that as well. Yeah. Give up, maybe. I like to moan about how hard it is, because God clearly doesn't understand how hard it is. And nobody else seems to understand how hard it is. So I want to moan when I face opposition. And so the challenge here, verse 4 of chapter What Nehemiah does is he mobilized perspective, true perspective. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Lord, this is how it feels, but we're looking to you. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt and so on. Hear us, O God. Not moaning or hiding or caring, but God, you know, I can trust you in this moment. Lord, you you hear the cry of my heart. I'm feeling like I'm being crushed, but you know and you can hear. And they kept going. There's this lovely verse, verse 6. So they pray, and they don't stop, and they don't hide. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. That's the bit I would have had to stop at. For the people worked with all their heart. Isn't it beautiful? Lovely picture of building the kingdom. All team, all got a part to play. They're facing opposition, but they're standing together and they're praying, they're looking to God, who will bring them success. And they're working with all their heart. So the plot thickens, the enemy hates it. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Verse 10, uh, it's interesting, sometimes... Uh, 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 opposition comes from within as well as without. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They're getting tired, they're getting exhausted, they're getting worn out and that leads to all kinds of lack of faith and belief as well. The battle from within and without. Also, verse 11, our enemies uh, are still saying, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So instead of looking to God, some of the Jews are beginning to look at the problem. Have you ever done that? Have you repeated the problem ten times over? Does it help? No. (laughs) But we do it all the time, don't we? This is the problem. This is the problem. This is the problem. Does it change anything? I think it does. It makes this problem get... Okay? So this is the problem. Ah, this is the... This is the problem. 
and we moan a little bit more. So Nehemiah takes some decisive action, verse 13. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. But then he does what is so important in terms of mobilizing perspective. Verse 14. After I looked over these things, uh, after I looked over these things, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So they turn to God in the midst of it all, and then they focused. Perspective is all about focus, isn't it? It's all about where you're looking. And it's almost impossible to move forward in God's kingdom if you focus on the problem. Because what you focus on in the end will consume you. Is that not the truth? So if I put a cream cake here, but I'm not going to eat it, and I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not eating the cream cake, what am I thinking about? The cream cake. And so what we focus on holds us and and grabs us. That's why the lust of the eyes the Bible speaks about is so important. Because what we see, what we look at, will, will grab hold of us. And so what Nehemiah does is so important. He says, you Jews, you're you're making us look at the problem ten times over. And to be honest, it might have been a small problem, but now in our minds and our hearts it's taking over. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So Nehemiah says, no, we're going to look somewhere else. We're going to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then this lovely verse, verse 20, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Why? Because our God will fight for us. When you hear the trumpet, know that God is on the move. Forget about us and our ability to fight. We can't fight, uh, you know, uh, for two pins, but our God will fight for us. And so where's their focus? What will they think about when they hear the trumpet? They'll think about the God who will fight for them. And when your back's against the wall, when you feel you want to moan, when your problems are getting bigger and bigger, there is an issue of where you're looking. And it's not very pastoral to say, look somewhere else. But that's what you have to do. Because for as long as we keep focused on that which opposes us, we will feel opposed. And it's why in the New Testament, uh, some very famous verses talk about where our focus is. The church in Colossae, in Colossians, uh, the letter of the Colossians was written to, was, was a church with its back against the wall. They felt so small and insignificant against the great powers and philosophies of the day. So Paul writes to them and says, whatever you do, don't spend your time looking around at all these philosophies and all these these powers that seem so big. He says in these famous words, since then the truth for your life is that you've been raised with Christ. Since the truth is that you belong to him, set your hearts where? On things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So keep your focus on God, because from... In that moment, you are forever reminded that you belong to him. 
And if in every moment you belong to him, whatever opposition comes, if you belong to him, you know the end of the story, don't you? We win. We win. Yeah, most churches get that excited about it. You're right. You know, that's that's a brilliantly Christian attitude to the. Yes, you know, we win. We win. And And so, as I'm focused on him, and every time the Bible says for us to focus on him, it usually goes on to say something about the fact that we're in Christ and therefore one day we'll win. I can focus on Jesus in this situation here and now because this situation here and now will not overwhelm me, never ever. Because I'm on the winning side. Another one, perhaps even more famous. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, if we're looking to him, who can be against us? And then it says something about the truth of who we are with God, who is always with us and for us. This is the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if he did that in the past, if he offered his life, if Jesus has risen, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things into the... We win. We win. And so Nehemiah is doing the same thing. You've got, you've got to look to God. God who, who knows the end from the beginning. This is God's story. This is God's city. This is God's wall. This is God's building. This is God's doing. Whatever enemies are coming, let's look to God. This is his doing in the end. And that's why Jesus said, in response to Peter's confession, uh, I'm going to build my church. I will build my church. I'll, I'll win. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're going to be useful to God, you need that perspective. And what we have to try and do for one another, and this is really difficult, and uh, some of it, uh, some of this idea you looked at on the Caring God's Way course, some of you that have, that have done that. Because what I want you to do when I'm facing opposition and I'm feeling like moaning, what do I want you to do? I want you to empathize with me. I want you to tell me that, yeah, absolutely, you should be moaning. If I was facing that, I'd be moaning too. Well, fuck a lot of good you'd be to me then. But that's what we want people to do. We want people to empathize with us and to say how sorry they are. Now, I need that, and so do you. That's not bad or wrong. But that's not enough. Because if all you do is empathize with me and tell me that, I, that, that well, it's understandable that you moan, you must feel terribly dreadful then I'm still going to feel terribly dreadful and feel somewhat justified in my moaning response. What I need you to do is help me. I need you to get alongside me and to empathize with me. Otherwise, I won't listen to anything you've said. So you do need to care. You do need to empathize. But I need you to say, well, actually, there's a bigger goal here, Simon, isn't there? There's a bigger God here, isn't there? And I tell you, it can feel quite harsh sometimes to say to someone who's so good, hey, come on, God's bigger than this. We can trust him in this. Because it, it almost sounds a little bit like you're not empathizing enough. Do you, you hear where I'm coming from? Okay, so you empathize loads. But if that's all we do, we leave people wallowing in the difficulty. And our God's bigger, isn't he? Greater, stronger. We're, we're, we're trusting him for bigger things than this, aren't we? And, and so we, we, we have to have the courage, one with another. That's why we need team to, to, to empathize, but also to encourage me to look beyond whatever's going on, to look back to him, to our God who who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask, think, or imagine. And then lastly, 
from a mobilized perspective, uh, he mobilized purity. Final sting in the tail, this one really. We see in chapter 5 that an issue arose and the the people's response was not that great. And so in verse 9, so I, Nehemiah, continued, what you are doing is not right. Ooh, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? Let's back to that. I just want you to empathize a bit. No, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Right living requires. And sometimes I know that if God's going to call me to this particular plan, to this particular purpose, in order for me to be useful to him in that plan and purpose, he's going to need to deal with this in my life. And I'm not sure I want him to. Ever felt like that? Somehow I know that if I'm going to be useful for God there, he needs to deal with this in here. And I feel quite settled, actually, with this in here. I don't want that disturbed. That'll hurt me. It'll be painful. It might cause shame in the short term for me. It might condemn me in the short term before I receive God's forgiveness and and, and healing. But Nehemiah, straight on. God's looking for right living. If we want God to bless us, if we want this plan to succeed, I have to confront the things in me that are not right. Now, of course, there's nothing in me that is not right, because I'm a minister. But you lot, of course. I have to confront the things in me that are not right. And not wanting to be too honest on a Sunday morning, there might be things in me that are not right. And as God reveals them to me, I have that choice. Push it down. Receive his forgiveness and his healing. How easy it is to push it down, though. You ever found that? How easy it is to put off bringing to God something today because I know I could do it tomorrow. When God puts his finger on something in your life, deal with it quickly. If you're feeling condemned about something, that's not God's work. God points things out to free you and forgive you and cleanse you and heal you. And yet we choose to live so often under condemnation and the weight of guilt and all that stuff he longs to free us from. And so verse 12, uh, a little prophetic image, verse 12, uh, about his garments. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. There's two things going on here. What it doesn't say is that if you hold on to things that are wrong, God's plan will stop. It doesn't say that. It says that if you hold on to things that are wrong, God's plan will carry on, but without you. You won't stop God's plan, and neither will I. And and there's a security about that, isn't there? It'd be hard to sleep at night, wouldn't it, if we could grind God's plan to a close. But we can't. His plan will go on. Jesus will come back, and you can't stop that, and neither can I. Hallelujah. There's nothing that I can do to thwart in the end what God's going to... He's going to do it. So God's plan will go on, but he will shake out of his plan those who choose to hold on to things in their lives that are not 
right. And suddenly I'm a bit uncomfortable again. And so this, in the end, is the question, I think, from this book. And it's a simple question. Lord, we feel a bit like the, the father in the story when Jesus said to him, do you, do you believe that I can heal your son? And the father was really honest and he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And in our hearts, our honest answer to this question probably is, yes, I, I so, with all my heart, want to be useful, but I know that part of my heart doesn't. Because I'm fearful for what that might mean. I, I'm concerned about the way that might challenge me and destabilize me and, uh, and make my life more risky and less comfortable. And, and so he says, with all the grace and love that a God who gives his only son for you and me, with all the grace he can, he says, do you want to be useful? I want you on my team. And he said to those fishermen, come follow me. He says to you and me today, hey, will you come? Will you be on my team? And I bet as those, as those fishermen heard those words, come follow me, they, they realized it was the words they'd been looking for all their lives. There was a passion inside them that suddenly was ignited. And Jesus says to you today, you're going to come, follow me. Are you going to allow that passion that I've placed in you to grow in you, to catch fire in you, to work under God's Spirit to its conclusion? And as that passion begins to ignite, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would you pray that we'd learn to avoid the temptation of living, walking on the other side. Father, hear the prayer we offer. Not for ease that prayer shall be, but for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously. Not forever in green pastures do we ask our way to be, but by steep and rugged pathways would we seek you fearlessly, not forever by still waters, would we idly quiet stay, but would smite the living fountain from the rocks along our way. Be our strength in hours of weakness, in our wanderings, be our guide through endeavor, failure, danger. Father, 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 be there at our side. Let's stand together.